Lee, what blanks did I miss? So many blanks. Should I just read through the blanks? I'm just going to... Okay. 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 Fair enough. <laughs> okay. But Abby, Abby got them all. She came up. She was so proud. She came up. <laughs> wow. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, okay. Here the, I'm just going to go through. Point number one. The son's absolutely subservient and fully equal with the father. A, the principle. Principle. B, foundation. C, basis. C, two, purpose. D, example. E, example. F, purpose. F, one, degree. F, two, consequence. Two, how you respond to Jesus' word determines your eternity. A, condition. A, one, receive. A, two, believe. B, consequence. B, one, salvation. B, two, justification. B, three, regeneration. All right? Okay. Now, I, 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 struggled, I struggled more with this passage and how to lay out an outline because technically, <laughs> technically the points don't line up into the main point. Synthetic is the notion of developing. So Jesus says something and he adds some clarity. So really, he lays out the principle, I can do nothing. And then he gives the next, the first four. Let me, let me, let me take a moment and just walk you through what I th- think the logic is. Lest, lest the Jews think Jesus is claiming to be in competition with the Father, lest he, they think he's claiming to be in somehow conflict, I can do nothing on my own accord, but only I see the Father doing. Then the first four explains, though, that he's fully able to reflect everything because the Father loves him and shows him everything. So he, what he sees the Father doing is not a limited subset. He sees it all. So, so A and B really become the foundation for, um, and C, for everything that follows. Then point C ends with the purpose. The, the Father's doing this, that you would marvel, and he's going to show you greater works. Then he gives you two examples of those greater works, the, the raising the dead and judgment. And then he gives you another purpose, so that all will honor the Son. So really it's, look, look guys, I only do what I see my Father doing, but I do see everything that my Father does. And my Father's going to show me more things so that you will marvel even greater things. I'm going to judge the dead. I, I will give, my word will give life to, to, to the dead. And the Father's purpose is that I might be honored even as he is honored. And then he pauses to say, and look, it is critical that you receive my testimony. Understand that in receiving my word and hearing my word, you're receiving the Father's testimony and you cannot honor the Father. I mean, that's a radical claim to a Jew. You cannot worship God unless you worship me. You cannot honor God unless you honor me. That, I mean, pause for a Jew. and just, The audacity of someone to come in and say, it'd be like someone coming in here and saying, you can't worship Jesus or God unless you worship me, unless you honor me. But that's why the second half of this chapter is the, the warrant, the witness to back this claim up. In other words, this is such a huge claim that it deserves, it's appropriate for Jesus to point to John the Baptist, to point to his miracles, to point to the Father verbally going on record and the testimony of Moses in the Scripture. He's going to point to all those as the basis to make such a claim. Um, so that's, that's the flow of this morning's text. And then he's going to go back into, after pausing to say it's critical, he's going to explain some more, and then he's going to round the corner to, um, to justifying 
the warrant, the witnesses that he brings to bear to back up such a claim. So, okay. With all that out of the way, what you got for questions? And who's got the mic? You got the mic, Jake? Excellent. Okay. Questions? JP. So, um, in verse 20 where he says, and greater works than these will he show him, mm-hmm. that future tense intrigues me. What should we make of that? All we make of that? So far, Jesus has not raised anyone from the dead that we know of. And if we harmonize the Gospels, the resuscitations that occur in them, and there's more, like in, in Luke 5, the widow, son, um, have not occurred yet. As best as I can harmonize things, showing up to Cana and Galilee at the end of chapter 4 synchronizes with Mark 1.14, where Jesus begins his ministry. So this is early, early in Jesus' public ministry. So Jesus is doing everything. So why did you do this miracle on the Sabbath, Jesus? Because my father's initiative. I'm doing it because I saw it in my father. Jesus is going to see some other things in his father that are going to lead to him raising people from the dead. First, temporarily and temporarily, the people he raises from the dead are going to die, Lazarus included. So I, I think simply he's pointing to greater works he's going to be doing that he hasn't done yet. So it's more like opportunities than like categories. Like there isn't something where Jesus is saying there's a work that I don't know about yet that I'm going to do. Yeah. No, well, and, and, part, and part of what's tough with this is how much of this is limited by the incarnation, right? Um, because we've seen Jesus both exercise um, supernatural knowledge, the woman at the well, knowing her past, Nathaniel under the fig tree, and Jesus evidencing humanity. He's tired. And in the other Gospels, at least, we have examples of him not knowing things. Who touched me? Um, so is Jesus not seeing these things because he's limited in what he knows? Or are there some works that God simply hasn't done yet? The judging of the living and the dead has not occurred yet, right? I mean, there's some demons kept in chains of darkness for the last day, but the final judgment is yet future. So there is no, Jesus has not experienced or seen the Father do that yet because the Father hasn't. If we can, I mean, this gets tricky. We're using temporal categories, but from within time, Father hasn't done that yet. So I don't fully know. I don't know what of this is limitations to the incarnation and what of this is simply speaking of. Because we know in the Old Testament, um, Elijah prayed over the, the widow of Nair's son and he came back from there. So in one sense, God has already brought back to life people who have died in the Old Testament. It's rare, but it, it's happened. Um, so, it, yeah, I, it's a fair question. I, I don't know. That's part of the deep waters here. I thought for sure you'd go into the EFS discussion, which I'm going to dodge with all, all for all I'm worth. Um, but uh, you didn't. So okay. Mm. Well, this is probably not no, no. Go, 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 go. It was. Well, it was about. It's maybe not on topic enough for this. It's about when about the incarnation and its limitations. Yeah. Why is it that we read when Jesus asks who touched me? Why don't we read that as we do in Genesis with where are you sure. and where is your brother there, there Cain? Are people, no, there are people who do. Let me, let me pause. I'm fine to take this because <coughs> we're talking about the incarnation and we're talking about 
Jesus being God and man. So fair enough. And more importantly, because I feel up for the challenge. Okay, good. See, if I wasn't ready for the question, then I'd say it's off topic and we'll have to deal with that later. But, okay. <laughs> but because I feel prepared for it, you've chosen a well on topic. Okay. Wonderful. <laughs> because of Luke 2. Luke 2. Go to Luke, go to Luke 2. Um, uh, when you're dealing with the incarnation, you're going to either have to conclude... Jesus was not all, at all times functionally, um, what's the word, Omni, omniscient, there we go, thank you, my brain, um, or you're going to end up like some of the Catholic paintings I've seen that have Jesus teaching with the umbilical cords uncut. Yeah, literally, I mean, no, because if he's omniscient and he shows up out of the womb knowing everything, no learning to do, then why not preach a sermon? You know, and then you can see with a halo and he's got his fingers up. And, yeah. Um, but Luke, however we figured out, and we don't get all the details, I can't get around Luke. Jesus learned things. And, and it's, it's the, uh, it's. So Luke does it in an inclusio, which I've mentioned before is the bookends. You, you begin a chunk and you end a chunk by saying something very similar. And the inclusio in two is this, um, 40 and 52. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And 52, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And what that inclusio surrounds is Jesus staying behind in Jerusalem, asking questions of the teachers in Jerusalem. So hermeneutically, literarily, if, if Luke gives us that cap, that's telling me what the major theme or point of the section is. So what is Jesus doing in Jerusalem with the teachers at the temple? He's growing in wisdom. He's learning. I think that's how Luke would have us view it. Um, learning perfectly. Learning without mistake, but learning nonetheless, uh, which means then Jesus is not, at least not at all times, functionally omniscient. Um, and so the example, I and, and, and the fact that I can't plumb the depths of the, I mean, let me pause, I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday. Whenever we don't understand something, we give it a good name and then we feel better about it. C.S. Lewis pointed this out. Birds fly south, how do they fly south? By instinct, which is to say we don't know how they fly south, um, right? Same thing with Trinity. You get through these, you believe in the Trinity, and we give it a nice good name, and we reify it, and then we feel better about it. Um, these are mysteries. These are deep things. So the, another one is, how is Jesus fully God and fully man? That's the hypostatic union. See, it's all clear now. And you name a mystery. And so the, with a lot of these things, what we're mainly guarding against, we don't fully understand, is error, heresy. Going, we know that it's not this. We know it's not that. Um, so what I'm putting is a supposal of an example of how this might work. It's clear to me in Luke. I, to me, I'm, it's clear. I'm, Luke intends for me to conclude Jesus is learning. And what Jesus is doing in the temple is growing in wisdom and stature. Um, given that, then at least at this point in his life, Jesus is not operating in omniscience. And I say operating because if I say he doesn't have it, he stops being God, as best as we can tell. God is omniscient. So the analogy I would use is, imagine I've got the super supreme deluxe Bose power everything, heated seats, power sunroof, remote start, every doodad for the top of the line, 
Nissan NV. I don't, but imagine I did. Okay. But imagine I had a switch where I could turn some of those special features off. I could turn the power steering off. I could turn the sunroof control off. I could turn the AC off. I could... So I could claim then that with the switch turned off, that my experience of driving is no different from the person who has the bare bones Nissan NV. My car would never cease to be the deluxe model. The reason I'm, I use that analogy is Jesus comes and he lives as man for man. And as far as I can tell, he takes no cheat codes. He has no advantages. He has no access to things I didn't have access to. Um, it's not like Superman where underneath the shirt, doom, 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 he's, yeah. so he, he, we see him in Luke, right? He, he survives the temptation, not because God can't be tempted, but because he studied this Bible and he's quoting Deuteronomy back at the devil. That's how he survived temptation. Luke, Luke wants us to, when he masters scripture later in Luke, it's not, we're not to conclude because he's God and he wrote it. We're to conclude because he's a 12 year old boy who spent three days and three nights discussing it, debating it, questioning the teachers because he was a really good faithful student. That's why he mastered, that's why he's able to silence the Sadducees later in the gospel. Um, so Luke's showing us why later he's a master of the scripture. And we're, we're, we're working against Luke's purpose if we say, well, of course, he wrote it. No, we're, he's showing, what's the point of this example of him studying for three days and three nights? If not, that's why, right? So, so he didn't master the scripture with access to some ability you and I don't have. He, he shows us what a perfect human working perfectly and diligently is capable of and able to do. So I want, to say, I want, and this is mostly based off of Hebrews 4, in every way we have a high priest able to sympathize with us for he has been tempted or tested in every way like us. Hebrews 2, he was made like us in every way yet without sin. So in every way possible, I want Jesus to be like me in his incarnation. I want there to be more points for sympathy. I want there to be more points of understanding. I want his life to be more like mine. And I think the text wants me to go there. So it matters to me being able to say his experience was similar to my experience. In the same way that if I turn the switch off my Nissan NV, my experience of driving the Nissan NV is similar to the person who has none of the bells and whistles. It also matters to me that he doesn't ever stop being God. So I, I invent categories like functionally omniscient. I don't, he's not experiencing omniscience. He's voluntarily, we come up with clever ways of saying it, but we're trying to guard against saying he stopped being omniscient. He didn't utilize omniscience. Sure. He chose not to access or make use of it. He voluntarily didn't make use of, I mean, it's whatever, it's whatever Philippians 2 is getting at when he emptied himself. Well, I mean, we don't know what he emptied himself of. And frankly, when we try to say what he emptied himself of, we say bad things. That's why we, I don't like um, that line, um, he emptied himself of all but love. What does that mean? <laughs> I don't know. So I, wherever I can, I swap it out. He emptied himself to show us love, you know, until Daniel tells me I can't violate copyright, you know. He's, <laughs> but I'd do it anyway. Um, what? Okay, there you go. John West, it's not copyright anymore. We can change that one. Excellent. But that's, but, but, but that's why. But that's why. There are some people so wanting to guard the deity of Christ, there are good people who insist that every time Jesus says he doesn't know something is, like you said, in the garden, is purely hyperbolic. It's, it's dare I say, theatrical, or, it's, or it's, it's, uh, to prove a point or something. Except you're going to have a hard time when Jesus makes a hard-line statement about the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the sun. There seems to be at least one thing, at one point in time, Jesus unequivocally denies knowing. And maybe there's a way around that. He's just saying that. Okay, well, sound, it kind of sounds like you're saying he's lying. Then, you know? <laughs> so, 
I'm, I think from Luke 2 that Luke intends for us to conclude, oh, hey, here's Jesus studying and growing in wisdom and learning. Okay. So then Jesus doesn't come out of the womb knowing everything, talking and speaking. He has to learn to walk. He has to learn to speak. He has to learn to do everything else. And he does it perfectly. He's, he's never being foolish about it, um, which can be challenging for, uh, as well to grapple with. You know? um, we don't get that much insight into Jesus before he's fully mature. Uh, he's passive in the circumcision when he's taken up in Luke 2. He's circumcised. He doesn't act. The first time we see him acting is um, in Luke 2. Where's the, uh, they leave him? Right there in Luke 2. When he's left at the temple, he's 12. He's 12, and then we don't see him again until he's baptized by John. And he's 30, 33. I mean, we, we really get very little knowledge of Jesus prior to him being a mature man. So... I'm comfortable saying I don't know um, because we don't get a ton of information. But that's, but that's what you said, why not? That's why not. Okay. Um, to me, it, it's, uh, it's, it's beautiful, comforting, and encouraging to know that Jesus had no access to other things than, than... Probably the best comparison is the first Adam because you can say, well, I, I'm born with a sinful nature. F- fair enough, Jesus wasn't. Adam wasn't. I think the real comparison is first Adam to last Adam, first Adam to second Adam. Um, and, you know, Adam blames his wife, Christ dies for his wife. You know, um, I, I, think, I think that's really the best comparison. So Jesus has no advantages that Adam didn't have. would probably be a fairer point. But, but yeah, for, those, for the encouragement we're supposed to get from Hebrews of knowing our high priest, when, we, when I come to Jesus struggling with my temper, struggling with, with, with anything... I'm to take comfort that the one I'm coming to has shared in the experience and the difficulty and temptation such that he doesn't look at me with disgust and say, why on earth would you think that, you disgusting thing? Get out of here, right? So the more you make Jesus like Superman, he's from, he's from Krypton and he's not like me, he just looks like he's like me, the harder it is for me to believe that. So for that practical reason, I care. That's a long-winded answer, I suppose, but it's important it's a great question. Lee, you were next. Well, kind of uh, part of it is the uh, verse 21 and at the second half of 21, 20. And it says, in greater works than these, will he show him? Is that will God show Jesus? Yes. Uh, so that kind of then opens the door to the um, omniscient question, too. That if if Jesus is submitting to the Father and just waiting for these things to be revealed to him, then yeah. that makes sense. So, well, one of the things that's also remarkable at Luke too, if Jesus doesn't come into the world knowing everything functionally, like you and I don't, then this is a, a brain buster. There's a day where he learned he was the Messiah, oh. right? And there's a day where he started to study his Bible and figure out what that meant. I think that's one of the significant points of Luke 2 as well. So in Jewish, this is extra biblical, but how old are you when you get bar mitzvahed? In, in 13. 13. So Jesus is 12. That's interesting. Why 12? Well, as best as we can tell, the Bible doesn't give us this. This is extra biblical. But as best as we can tell, this would be Jesus last year in the court of the women and the children. Right. Starting in his 13th year, he would go with Joseph into the court of the men as a man. So before Jesus became a legal man in Jewish culture... What's the, what's the whole, what's the whole uh, contrast? Mary, don't you know your father and I have been worried for you? Don't you know I'm supposed to be about my father's business? Different referent for father, right? He's not talking about Joseph. 
So one of the things we get from that is before he became a man at 12 years old, Jesus knows who his dad is and knows what his mission is. So if Jesus is learning, he's figured that much out already, right? And I think that's part of it. By, I don't know when he figured out that, when he learned that. I mean, and again, we're dancing on things we aren't given. But if he's learning, he didn't show up knowing everything. If he's learning, we know he's learned that much already. The text gives us that. So one of the things we're going to know is before he becomes a man, before he's 13, he knows who his father is and he knows his father's work is. Wow. Okay. Um, so, yeah. It's, no, it's, it's, I mean, and, and somebody's going to want to go like right, like, you know, the next season of The Chosen trying to unpack guessing what that is. And I say, please don't. You know, like, I, Marvel, wonder, maybe we can know in eternity. Please don't write it. Um, <laughs> no, please don't. Don't make Jesus a sock puppet. You put words in his mouth. I don't, I don't like it, but okay. Okay. Questions? Yes. Jared. All right. This is just one from the text. Yeah. Um, truly, truly. It's uh, verse 25. Yeah. I want to know who the dead are. Like, who, who is he talking about? Because he could be literally foreshadowing the resurrections that he's going to do in a little bit or... Yeah. It could be us as a motif. You're getting John. to next week. Okay. He means everybody who dies or died. Okay. Look, no, let's, let's read the text next week. Yeah. Now, I'm not going to give you a better answer than that, partly because I've got a week's worth of study to do and partly because just say, show up next time, next week, and hopefully. Uh, so, no, but let's read it. Um, Verse 25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he's granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he's given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs. When he says the dead, it's all who are in the tombs. All the dead, not some subset of the dead. All who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who've done good to the resurrection of life and those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So this is both the righteous and the unrighteous, believer and unbeliever alike, will be raised, and they'll be raised by the word of the Son of God. So he means everybody, um, you and me included, if we don't live till his return. No, good question, but yeah, there, yeah, next week we'll be dealing with the two resurrections and all of that. Okay, other Thoughts, questions, complaints? Michaela. Is that Michaela? Yes. I just saw that arm, but I thought I knew who was wearing blue like that. Um, so up to this point, what um, knowledge do these individuals have or what information is made known about the full concept of the Trinity? Very little. Very little. The, the Trinity, the triunity, let me, let me back up and even talk about Trinity because I said earlier, we, we make up words. And it's fine we make up words, but the danger of making up words is naming does imply a certain amount of authority, just as Adam named the animals and even named the woman. Um, naming implies some sense of mastery over, some sort of comprehension over. And so when you name things in God, we've got to pause lest we think we understand them. So by tri- the, the Trinity is about three things I can say positively and about 400 things I can say it isn't. Jesus is God. The Father is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Jesus is not the Father. The Father is not the Holy Spirit. Well, I'm not using negative statements. There, God is one. Jesus is God. The Holy Spirit is God. The Father is God. 
positively, I've reached the end of what I can say positively, and everything else I'm going to say about the Trinity is going to be negative, apophatic, in negation. It's not this, it's not this, it's not this. Uh, you'd want to add in as well that God exists eternally in three simultaneous persons. You've had, we've had to add simultaneous recently because of uh, the Pentecostal oneness modalism. As if some people take the doctrine of the Trinity and want to, want to envision maybe God sort of takes different roles on and like you switch hats, you know. And so on, when in the incarnation, God comes to earth as Jesus and in the age of the church, God visits us as the Holy Spirit. And in the Old Testament, he's the Father. With that conscription, what you don't have is any fellowship between the Father and the Son. And so you look at the cross. Right, right now. But, it, but critically, there's no loving relationship. And on the cross, is, is God suffering? Is God pouring out his wrath? How does that work? Um, so you, no, so, but there's a, there's a branch of Pentecostalism, oneness Pentecostalism, that denies the Trinity. It's called modalism. God's in different modes. And, and this is, gets back to some of the in, insufficient um, analogies. The Trinity's like water. It can exist as ice or as liquid or as vapor. Yeah, but not at the same time. Um, and so... That's modalism, Patrick. Anyway, um, that's, it's, worth, it's worth watching, dude. It's great. Um, and and if, it, it's, it's, it's a, so what, what we get here, and what's critical here is the, the Trinitarian relationship is about a loving relationship. And I've mentioned this before, but one of the reasons why this matters, if you wonder why we abstractly talk about this, well, one, the reason I included verse 24 this week is because Jesus insists this is mission-critical content. But... As, as Christians, I think I've made this point before, and again, this is, I'm just borrowing off D.A. Carson, um, but this stuff is profound. If you take the three big monotheistic religions, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, and you, you press Islam and Judaism of what it means that God is love, they're going to have a really hard time, because they've got non-Trinitarian views of God, explaining, fleshing out what God means that God is love in eternity past. They can talk about God being loving by giving the Torah at Sinai. And they can talk about God being loving in, in sending a lamb for Abraham. They can talk in time and space about God being loving. But when you say, is it fundamental and intrinsic to his character? Or to use another term, is it a contingent reality? By contingent meaning, it's only true when the circumstances arise to make it visible. In other words, how can God be loving without objects to love? Without, is God being loving... And love being a part of God, contingent on creation. It can only be expressed and present when there's a created order. Well, here we see no. God has always been loving. God has always been relational. God has always been communicative. God has always been in that. The Trinity gives us actually a bedrock for the reality that First John says God is love. When God shows up in Genesis 1 and starts talking, he is doing nothing fundamentally new or original. He's been doing this the whole time. I mean, and I'm not trying to... I don't know what intra-Trinitarian communication looks like or sounds like. I don't know if vocal... Probably not. But in, in, go to First Peter um, 1. The little glimpses we have behind the curtain of eternity past have God using language categories which I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to draw too many conclusions about it. I'm simply saying, God's communicating. I don't know how, telepathy, I don't know. Like, I don't know if I need to know, but God's communicating. So First Peter, um, where's it Second Peter? It's Second Peter, isn't it? 
would be. Um, no, it's first Peter. Sorry, I was. It's that time I've only been wrong once, and it was when I thought I was wrong and I wasn't. Okay, sorry, that's terrible. Okay. Um, where is it? In the hopes of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised for eternity began. Um, where is that? It's Peter. Hold on. Phone. I'll find it. Um, promised. Promised. Hold on. It's Second Peter. No, it's not. What? Uh, no, hold on. Um, no, it's in the hopes of the hopes of eternal life, which God I promised before the eternity began. Isn't that Peter? Or am I totally off base? You're totally right. I was totally wrong. No, 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 no. No, dude. Dude. I, I err. Yeah. Titus, one, two. Thank you, Alex. We don't, we don't get many glimpses behind the curtain of what was going on before creation, but this is one of the glimpses we get. Starting verse 1. Paul, the servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. To which I want to know, who did he promise to? So presumably, this is an intra-Trinitarian promise. My guess would be the Father to the Son. I couldn't be dogmatic on that. But one member of the Trinity to another is promising something relating to salvation. We're using language categories. What we're seeing is communication and relations and, and information is being communicated. So I'm not trying to die in the hill of how, but my point is so when God shows up in Genesis 1 talking, he's communicating. He's not doing anything new. He's been doing this forever. He, he's, he's not beginning some new thing. He's beginning communicating with the creation. That's new. But that he is disclosing who he is, that he is speaking, is not. And so, so back to the doctrine of the Trinity, if you press us and you meditate, you think about it, that God is, Jesus is the word, isn't some creation contingent reality. That, G, that God is loving and God reveals himself isn't some creation contingent reality. God has always been doing this forever and ever and ever. Amen. These things are grounded in the doctrine of the Trinity. We don't believe the Trinity because of them, but believing the Trinity, we can see, oh, wow. That gives us a foundation for those things in a way that Islam and Judaism struggle with. Um, if, if you press them on it, it's hard to see how Allah in a, in a Muslim construction is fundamentally loving. And love is at a core part of Allah's being because for all of eternity past, it's really hard to envision how Allah is loving anything or anyone, right? Um, it, it's, it's just re- same thing with, with, uh, with Judaism. It's hard to see how, how um, the name, as they'd say, um, they don't want to say his name wrong, so it's, it's praise to the name, Hudul Hashem. Um, it's hard to see how the name is loving as an intrinsic core reality and not some contingent reality. Um, so, yeah. Okay? 
Other thoughts, questions, complaints? A haiku. And you! Over, we got two. Renee and then Alex. I'm not sure if this relates, but I think of Genesis 1, 26, then God said, let us make man in our image. So, okay, so yes, it does relate. I would say that I would, some people have argued that you can adduce, deduce the doctrine of the Trinity from the Old Testament. It certainly doesn't look like God required that or expected that of anyone. But having been given that truth in the New Testament, you can go back and see all sorts of things in the Old Testament that make sense including um, in Isaiah 6, uh, who is this one who is, who's got a... Well, there's a person who shows up in the Old Testament who's distinct from God, who people worship and talks like God. He's called the angel of the Lord. And, huh, and now, like, what? And he lets them. Oh, yeah, he does. Yeah, he does. Um, and let us and all those types of things. Sure. So given the clarity the New Testament gives us, you can go back and, oh, and see stuff in the Old Testament. I, all I'll say is God doesn't act, God doesn't speak to man as if he expected man was responsible to have put those pieces together prior to Jesus saying things like this. And even the fact that Jesus brings so much, I mean, half the chapter of this is, here's why my testimony is true. In other words, he's saying, in effect, it's right of you to demand a high bar of evidence, a high bar of testimony to receive such a claim, right? We, we say the, the burden of proof is on the one making a claim, and the more extraordinary the claim, the greater the burden of proof, right? Jesus is recognizing the legitimacy of a large burden of proof. And then he's, here's my proof. Um, the last Old Testament prophet testified to me. My miracles testify to me. God the Father verbally spoke at my baptism and testified to me. And the entire Old Testament testifies to me. That's his, that's his argument. Um, so, yeah, he recognizes it's a big claim. But then if you weigh that with the Old Testament, does this contradict? All of a sudden, I think there's enough in the Old Testament that with this claim, you can go back and, oh, I, can, I think I can see how that can fit. Because, I mean, of course, the challenge for a Jew who's heard God is one um, is, does this contradict the Old Testament? And, and there's enough in the Old Testament, I think, that you can see, no, this can fit in, this can fit in even with let us, which could just be a royal we, right? We are not amused. I mean, without the doctrine of the Trinity, it's, I think what most people would consider it is a plural we of uh, royal, royalty. I was about to say royality. I'm tired. I'm sorry. It's royality. It's making up words. Okay. Alex, what you got? I was going to ask if you thought the angel of the Lord was the pre-incarnate Christ. Yes. So there you go. Or there's a fourth member of the Trinity we don't know anything about. There is a person in the Old Testament who receives worship, who speaks for God, um, who at times identifies himself as God, and he disappears after the incarnation. He's known as the angel of the Lord. So the possibilities are that's Jesus, or there's a fourth member of the Trinity we've never been told about anywhere else. I'm going to go with option A. He's Jesus. Ben's going to straighten me out, though. Uh, not straightening you out because I think you're on on, okay, cool. on with this one. All right. Give this man a mic. But there's, uh, there's, there's also um, the appearances of um, Jesus apparently in the story of Daniel and in the prophecies of Daniel. 
Yeah, yes. We're going to deal with that next week as well, where he says, because he's the son of man. And yeah, go, go to Daniel, go to Daniel uh, 7, I believe. So, no, good point. Ben's point is not only is the angel of the Lord at times, wait, the one that's clear to the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord comes to Samson's parents. They say, woe unto us, we're going to die for we have seen God. And he doesn't let them feed them, but they offer him a sacrifice, and he ascends up to heaven on the smoke of the sacrifice. And you're like, whoa. Um, but, yeah, Daniel, um, Daniel 7, yeah. So I've mentioned before, Jesus' favorite title that he uses of himself is Son of Man. And it's a covert messianic title. It doesn't raise eyebrows because Ezekiel is called by God over a hundred times in the book of Ezekiel, son of man. And it means something like mortal, earthling, human. And so when Jesus calls himself the son of man, it doesn't raise huge eyebrows from the Pharisees and the Jews. There's another son of man in, um, in the Old Testament, and he's in Daniel 7. I saw, verse 13, in the night visions, and behold, with the cloud of heavens, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall never be destroyed. And what seals Jesus' fate and what presses the Jews over the edge in Matthew is in Matthew twenty four thirty. Um, he makes it clear what he means by son of man. And their jaws drop and they say, that's what you mean, son of man? <laughs> what further testimony do we need to kill him? Um, so... Matthew, actually, Matthew 26. Sorry, Matthew 26. Fifty-eight. Yeah, there it is. Okay. Um, let's start in verse. Uh, let's start in verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter, following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going in, sat beside the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. And at last two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days, which interestingly doesn't occur in Matthew. John gives us that. John 2 gives Jesus making the statement that could be misunderstood this way. Um, I am able to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said to him, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He just linked Son of Man with Daniel 7. I don't mean Ezekiel, son of man. I mean the one to whom kingdoms and dominion and eternal power come. And then the response, then the high priest tore his clothes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have heard the blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. So son of man is Jesus' kind of guerrilla title. 
for people who have eyes to see, they get it. And, but for everyone else, it just goes right over their heads. And then finally here, you know, let me tell you what I mean by son of man. I don't mean Ezekiel. I mean Daniel. And then, okay, kill him. Like that's, okay, Tim. Oh, sorry, Zeb. So um, on the Trinity, the Trinitarian discussion, uh, it's helpful to remember that Trinity is, the, the, the terminology of the Trinity means threeness. Trinity. And that the Athanasian Creed, which is probably the most yeah. fully formed um, formulation of the Trinity, doesn't just say, we believe in the Trinity. It talks about, um, it says that this is the Catholic faith, small c Catholic, um, that we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity. And the fact, um, just highlighting that there are three, that they are unified, they're separate, but they are, they share, it's, it's a lot to wrap your mind around, but the Athanasian Creed does a really, really like, it's like everybody, everybody should read the Athanasian Creed and then read it again, like all the time, because it really, it guards against so many incorrect ways of thinking. Um, and I will point out that if you look in the Athanasian Creed, there's a lot of positive statements about the Godhead um, beyond Jesus is God, the Father is God, the Spirit is God. Um, and like it, it talks about their their eternality, their co-eternality, um, and it it gets to the point where it's like almost repetitive because it says like the Father is uncreated, the Son is uncreated, the Holy Spirit is uncreated, the Father is immeasurable, the Son is immeasurable, the Holy Spirit is immeasurable. It it it's like hammering out that there is yes. distinction with shared um shared essence um which is just super like i said super helpful and guards against a lot of the incorrect ways of thinking and ultimately like like you mentioned the saint patrick's bad analogy video um every analogy ultimately that we try to come up with whether it's the three-leaf clover water or whatever it is it's all it all fails because it literally every single one is heresy. Every single one. Like there's nothing in the natural world that is like that, that is like the Trinity. Um, anyway, I was just going to point that out. Everybody go read the Athanasian creed. You've heard it from Zeb. Okay. Excellent. Tim, bring us home. You got five minutes to do this. I forgot. Okay. Okay. Turn it on. The only button on that thing? How's this? Hey. There you go. When we're talking about the pre-incarnate Christ, <clears throat> it reminded me of another character, and I, I had to look for it to find it, but it's Melchizedek. Yeah, Melchizedek. So a yeah. couple times in in Hebrews and then once in Genesis, they mention him. He, and once in Psalm 110. So Melchizedek, he's in, he's in Psalm 110. He shows up in two, two places in the Old Testament and then Hebrews. You're absolutely right. Melchizedek, there's some debate over whether or not he's pre-incarnate Christ. Um, I don't think so, but I wouldn't fight over it. And if you do, I wouldn't say it's, like, I, at the end of the day, it's not a huge point. The author of Hebrews makes some statements about Jesus, about Melchizedek, that uh, lead some readers to think that it is Jesus, that they say he's without genealogy or beginning or end. Um, and it, some would take that, you can understand why that would mean Jesus. Um, but... The other way of taking it is simply, strangely, Genesis doesn't give you who his parents were and what his end of days were. He enters the text without genealogy and without beginning or end of days, which is how, I 
keep saying Carson, but how Carson takes it that I think that makes sense. Like, it's odd that this guy shows up in the text without normally in Genesis, anybody who's anybody gets who their parents were, how long they lived, what children they begat. Melchizedek just shows up and Abraham starts tithing to him. Yes. This guy's bigger than Abraham. This guy's more righteous than Abraham. This guy's, this guy's receiving homage from Abraham. And isn't it unusual that he shows up without beginning or end of days? That, that's another way of reading what, what Hebrews 8 says. And certainly in that sense, he's a type of Christ because Psalm 110, um, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool. The Lord said to me, you are a priest of the order of Melchizedek. So the point being there, when Jesus is claimed to be the high priest, what, what tribe is the priestly tribe in Israel? And Jesus isn't a Levite, he's a Judahite, right? So the question is then, how can Jesus be a priest? There's an antecedent, there's at least one antecedent priest who's not of that tribe. He's, we don't know what tribe he's of, but apparently Levi is not the only possible way to be a priest because there's Melchizedek. In fact, whatever priest in Melchizedek's part of predates Levi. And the point the author of Hebrews makes is Abraham tithes to Melchizedek, and, in, and the thought being the parent is greater than the child. So Abraham is greater than Levi, his grandson or great-grandson? It's Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Levi. So that would be great-grandson? Great-grandson. So Abraham is greater than his great-grandson. So if Abraham recognizes Melchizedek is greater than him, ipso facto, Melchizedek's greater than Levi. Melchizedek's priesthood is greater than Levi's priesthood. And that's the point the author of Hebrews is trying to make. Um, but there are plenty of good people, especially a lot of Puritans, who think of Melchizedek, because he just shows up out of nowhere, receives, receives a tenth of what Abraham has, blesses him, and then he leaves the text. So if I get to heaven and find out it was pre-incarnate Christ, like, okay, cool. Like, nothing's going to change in my theology. Um, it, it, so there are people who think that. I, I, I think the other explanation makes sense, too. So, okay. But no, that's cool. 